Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and healthcare with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York lawmakers want the Albany Nanotech Complex to be chosen as the site of the nation's first national semiconductor technology center. The Legislative Gazette's Ashley Hupfel was there for the announcement and filed this report. At the SUNY Polytechnic Institute's Colleges of Nanoscale Science and Engineering Monday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer sought to present the Albany Complex as a nation-leading facility ideal for the hub created by his bill, the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. We've long had a history of manufacturing innovation in upstate New York and here in the Capital Region. We're the birthplace of IBM, which has played an instrumental role here uh, at Albany Nanotech. And uh, we, have, we are home to some of the most shovel-ready sites for chip investment in the country. When I wrote the USICA, the United States Innovation and Competition Act, I included funding for the creation of the first National Semiconductor Technology Center in the country. And guess what was on my mind when I wrote that? A six-letter word, A-L-B-A-N-Y. The Democrat says the bill is gaining momentum in the House and has already passed the Senate. Schumer invited U.S. Deputy Commerce Secretary Don Graves to tour the facility along with Governor Kathy Hochul. Schumer says Albany Nanotech has the most advanced machinery that makes semiconductor chips and is key to the United States staying ahead of other countries like the Netherlands and China. They're making these these chips smaller and smaller. I was told on a little chip about the size of your thumbnail there can be 50 billion transistors. Is that incredible? But when you take the tour, they have the machines and the technology to do just that. And that makes our companies more efficient, and it allows products to eventually come to people, uh, to, to even average consumers that are cheaper and more effective. So what it means here is we have to invest in new technology. If we want to stay number one in semiconductor research, in these, new, in these cutting edge chips, we have to invest. We have to invest in manufacturing. Hochul agrees that Albany is in a unique position as shovel-ready for new manufacturing plants. We need to train the workers, but not just to be the technologists. We need welders. We need people in construction because they're going to be building where you see parking lots right now. Under our joint vision, you're going to see new buildings going up. And we want to do it as quickly as we can because shovel-ready is the operative word. You will draw people who don't have to worry about are they going to get the site review and the transportation plans and the IESTA. Give them a site that's ready for them to leap into. After taking the tour, Graves said the country must invest in advanced manufacturing to avoid serious economic repercussions. Thirty years ago, as the governor mentioned, we owned basically 40 percent of the production of semiconductors. But we're nowhere close to where we need to be today. 12 percent of global production and you know, somewhere close to zero percent of the advanced chips, the most advanced chips. 
that doesn't that isn't going to cut it in the 21st century. It doesn't just create problems when you're thinking about purchasing a smartphone or an appliance. The ripple effects uh, have affected every part of our economy. The shortage is ex is expected to cost the auto industry $210 billion in revenue, with almost 8 million units of production forecast to be lost for 2021. While Hochul attempts to push the Albany Nanotech facility into the national spotlight, she included in her State of the State address a proposal that would establish Buffalo and Stony Brook as the State University of New York's flagship campuses. She has faced pushback from Capital Region state lawmakers for excluding SUNY Binghamton and the University at Albany, which she wants to reunite with the nanotech facility. Hochul was asked about the designation on Monday. I'm excited about this, and we're going to have a new SUNY chancellor, and we're going to unleash the full potential of SUNY, and that'll be one of our strengths when we are trying to market our state to bring people here. So they shouldn't worry about our plans, but they're going to be very bold and very ambitious. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Ashley Hupfel. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer, Alan Shartoff. Alan, this week, we learned that former New York Assembly Speaker Sheldon Silver died while serving a prison well, sentence in a corruption case. The Federal Bureau of Prisons said Silver died Monday. We do know that he was suffering from cancer. One of the most powerful figures in New York state government, a Democrat for two decades as speaker before your conviction on corruption charges. He was sentenced to more than six years in prison for using his clout to benefit real estate developers. The conviction ended a four-decade career in the Assembly. You've spoken to him many, many times over the years for your Capital Connection program and otherwise, you know, certainly a precipitous final ending for his career, but a, a sad ending nonetheless. It was. Look, Shelley Silver did a lot of very good things for a lot of people. He was known as a very progressive leader in so many ways. Too many to count. But what we can say is that he left his mark. However, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And he was as close to absolute power as you could be in New York. I don't know. I mean, I can't get inside somebody's mind who would risk all for all the good that he had done to ask a guy to send him people for his insurance business. It is beyond me. You just say to yourself, what in the world would be on his mind that he would risk all the good? And he goes to prison. And of course, every time there was an effort to get him out of prison because of his health, because of anything else, there would be people who would yell, my kid would be in jail for this. So they put him in jail and they kept bringing him back and he died there. And he had said, I think pathetically, I don't want to die in jail. I get it. Let me say, this is a terrible story. And there are a lot of people who love Shelley Silver and they're coming out and they're speaking about it right now. Nevertheless, you can't break the law in order to feather your own nest. And that is what he was convicted of doing. And that is so, so sad. I have to say, and you know this, David, I spoke to him so many times when Mario wouldn't show up for the program for one reason or another. He was mad at me or something else. 
Shelley would come on those times and Mario would come back. So I can only say it's a sad thing. And it is a lesson not only in New York politics, but in Massachusetts politics. We see it way too often. Why? I don't know. So, Alan, one of the things about Speaker Silver in his time was the three men in the room, that power group that negotiated the budget and made decisions and leveled punishments, for example, for people like when the speaker faced a potential coup from legislator Bragman of Syracuse. But they also had a formidable foe in New York State Senate leader Joe Bruno. So you had Republicans, unlike now, with some real power in the state. And the speaker was right in the mix. Well, the speaker was not only right in the mix, he was on the mix. Basically, he was running so much of it. You know, when we talk about this business of there are no more three men in a room because there are women in the mix, doesn't mean that there aren't three people in the room if you're following me. In other words, you may have somebody of a different sex, but they are tremendously powerful. And that is what this whole conundrum has been all about right along. Three people making decisions. Now, we are told that Speaker Hasty, for example, really does give deference to his conference in a way that Silver, for example, didn't who is much more of a dictator. You know, they always say the same thing. And as you know, I've interviewed many of them over the years. And they always say, oh, yeah, yeah. I go into the conference and they tell me what to do. Well, when you're negotiating three men in a room, two women in a room, one man in a room, you know, you don't say, okay, excuse me, I have to go back to my conference now and ask them. They'll say, of course, we know what they want. But in the end, these are very powerful people. Yeah, and it includes right now with the issue of bail reform, with the Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty, who you just mentioned, saying bail reform has been used as a scapegoat for a rise in crime, and the data has no context. You've got the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, another Democrat, of course, who is signaling she wants to take a look at bail reform. The Republicans have been hammering the Democrats over giving the judge a right to determine dangerousness of an individual that comes into the court. And you have Manhattan District Attorney now, Alvin Bragg, who has been talking about being soft on nonviolent crime with this spate of shootings. And this week, two officers killed in a shooting is now taking a tougher stance on guns. David, (laughs) this is so clear to me. People want to be protected. They want their safety. It comes first. So they tried bail reform. Theoretically, it's absolutely correct. If somebody has a lot of money, they can bail their way out of Rikers or wherever they are or never even get there. If somebody doesn't have any money, bail doesn't work for them because they don't have any money. The theory being that if you're a poor person, you should pay much less in bail than if you're a wealthy person. Bail just means you're supposed to show up when you're supposed to show up. So the Democrats go for bail reform. They figure our constituency wants us to do this. They get murdered in places like Long Island and Westchester. These are places where people want safety. So the Democrats have to take a long, hard look at that. If they don't, they're going to be doomed to the same kind of semi-wipeouts that they had in the last election. It is not a question of what is right. It is right. No question that anybody who is arrested should be allowed out on bail based on how much money they are have or they're going to be getting. That is not the way that it works right now. However, when somebody gets out on bail and commits a crime, you can be sure that's going to be the headline in the newspaper the next day. And I think that's what's going on now. 
Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartalk. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. On the Legislative Gazette with us this week is Ken Lovett, longtime reporter. Let's see, the Ottawa News Service, we've got the New York Post, we've got the Daily News, well known in the political circles of Albany and New York State government and politics, and of course covered Sheldon Silver, former speaker who died. This week, the Democrats sentenced to more than six years in prison for using his cloud in state government to benefit real estate developers, the conviction ending a four-decade career in the Assembly. Certainly a Democrat, certainly one of the three men in the room who was ultimately, and I can remember from my time way back then, Ken, on an equal playing field in many ways with the Senate leader, Joe Bruno, and whoever the governor was at the time. Oh, absolutely. Sheldon Silver was one of the most powerful men in New York, and the most powerful Democrat in New York. You know, his passing is really the end. And really, when he left the assembly, you know, in handcuffs, figuratively, his passing is the end of a real era of the autocratic type leadership of a legislative leader. This is a guy who ruled with an iron fist, who controlled the chamber top down, who punished those who tried to oppose him and who rewarded those who were with him. Yeah, and that's that kind of power that can create a corruptive climate in the legislature. I don't think there's anybody, including you, Ken, in all your years covering the legislature, that couldn't say on some level that a number of the knees were shaking of legislators around the state capitol when the assembly speaker was convicted for his theft of honest services. Yeah, I think there was a lot of, you know, obviously seeing him and, and being so close, by the way, to setting the record for longest tenured speaker. He came just short of Oswald D. Heck, who was there for almost 22 and a half years. Uh, he wanted that record. And when he went down, people were fearful of what it meant and what the dominoes would be. But really, he was the top dog, the top fish caught up in the uh, investigations by then U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara who also took down the Senate Majority Leader at the time, Dean Skelos. We lost both legislative leaders within a matter of months. Yeah, absolutely. We also know that in some ways he was able to get away with not saying very much when you talk to him. He certainly was involved in negotiations as the Speaker with, at the time, a Republican Senate. So he had opposition that he faced, and you often saw the governor and the Speaker playing their hands a bit differently in terms of the Democratic issues they supported with what we don't see anymore, a Republican Senate at their back. Yeah, he was a sphinx. Sheldon Silver. Like, it was very hard to read him. Um, he spoke in a monotone. He, he didn't play his cards publicly very much. Um, you know, he, he talked broadly. Um, he didn't give many details of negotiations unless they were really going sour. Um, he, he really kept to himself and even to his partners. 
who he was negotiating with. Don't forget, for a while, he was the only Democrat of the three in the room. Uh, He had a deal with George Pataki, as governor, who was uh, a Republican, and then Joe Bruno at the time, who was a Republican. Uh, He pushed for a lot of things. You know, he's he's a complicated person with a complicated record because he's going to be known for the conviction. He's going to be known for lining his pockets of millions of dollars. But he also did a lot. Um, you know, he, he, he really fought for New York City in particular. He fought to get uh, funding for schools, um, women's rights. And, and that's what made it so compl- complicated. Because while he was pushing abortion rights and anti, you know, and, and stronger rape laws and things like that, um, he was protecting, you know, one of his aides who was accused of rape and ultimately convicted of sexual assault. He protected a powerful Brooklyn lawmaker, Vito Lopez, who was also the Democratic leader in Brooklyn. Uh, he protected him uh, who, uh, after he was accused of sexual harassment. So uh, there were all these issues where what he was doing publicly with legislation, you know, he was kind of going uh, uh, the opposite direction privately. Well, and let's also remember that the New York legislature is part-time. So a lot of these legislators, many, many, many of them either are lawyers and are partners in law firms or associates, and many of them own their own businesses. And so when you have the perk of being a state lawmaker, it often comes with these other perks that can get you into trouble. Well, and for Sheldon Silver, he was someone who was working for one of the largest uh, trial lawyer firms, Whites and Luxembourg, and that's where some of these issues came up. There was a uh, cancer research doctor from uh, uh, Columbia Presbyterian, I believe, and he uh, he basically, according to the charges, gave him two grants in exchange for the doctor sending him ca- uh, sending Whites and Luxembourg cases. So you know he he used his public position to help himself privately. And, and, and obviously that's what ultimately got him in trouble. But he, you know, he's someone who really was known as a boogeyman for Republicans. When they ran candidates for the assembly across the state, they used Shelley Silver as why you should vote Republican. Um, but, you know, none of that fazed him because it strengthened him often with his own members. And he used to say, I know he said it to me and others, he would say, I have two constituencies I'm concerned about, the people who elected me in the Lower East Side of Manhattan and my members who elected me. So beyond that, he, he could take the heat for his members because, you know, he didn't care because the ones he cared about were those who actually vote for him, uh, both in the district and then for speaker. So you got any insight for us, Ken Lovett, on your years covering Sheldon Silver? He, like so many, get caught up in the system, the New York State government system, which leads to these acts of corruption. We've seen it with Mm -hmm. the former governor, Cuomo and his aides. We've seen it on so many legislators from around the state. The issue, of course, is what is the mechanism that creates this opportunity for corruption? And when so many have been getting caught, why does it continue? That's the that's the question everybody asks, right? I mean, you know, we've seen so many lawmakers arrested over the years. Shelley Silver was very smart. No one would ever accuse him of not being. Um, you know, maybe he thought he was straddling a line, uh, you know, as, as some of his supporters said, that he thought it was legal, um, if, if not, you know, even if it was questionable. But he, he, he certainly, you know, crossed the line. And, uh, and and really took down what would have been a meaningful uh, career in, in New York State. 
You know, you know, but again, a complicated guy. You know, what the public saw was someone who was dry, who was monotone, who didn't give a lot, but he was certainly, he did have a sense of humor. He did, you know, he loved the New York Rangers. He had season tickets to them. Um, you know, you had to be very on your game when interviewing him. I learned that first off. Uh, first time I interviewed him, I was with Ottawa News Service. It was 1995 for the, uh, uh, during the budget session, and it was late. The budget was late. And I asked him, despite the vitriol that was going on, I said, I have a theory that there's actually a lot more progress than you guys are letting on. Could we have a budget this weekend? And he said, yes, we could have a budget. Needless to say, the budget we could have a budget this weekend. Needless to say, the budget delay went on another two and a half months, and I learned the question I asked was, could we have a budget? And he answered it, yes, we could. Not that we would or probably would, but we could. So I learned you had to be very, very specific. He also had an ego. You know, when he was challenged, uh, Michael Bragman from Syracuse uh, tried to unseat him with a coup. Uh, he telegraphed it, and Silver was able to squash it, and, he, and, and Bragman and his supporters paid the price. But uh, he then promised that the, the rank and file would have more of a say. Not long after, I wrote a story, uh, an education story, in which I quoted Silver, but I also quoted the Assembly Education Committee chairman at the time, Steve Sanders. Silver called me up the next day and asked me, you know, why, why uh, Sanders was quoted first. And when I said, well, he's the education chairman, I thought that was right. He says, but you gave him 11 lines. I only had seven. <laughs> so so I, I thought that was pretty telling, too. You know, he had an ego. Uh, he didn't show it often. Um, you know, again, complicated, got a lot of stuff done if you're a Democrat. But, but also a lot of people felt that, you know, he supported a lot of people who, who uh, perpetrated violence and, and harassment on women. And, uh, and really didn't show caring for that, even while they were pushing those issues legislatively. He is Ken Lovett, formerly with the Daily News, before that the New York Post, before that the Ottawa News Service, and right now a consultant for i Strategies, which works on equity issues around the state of New York. Ken, thanks for spending some time to talk about the former speaker who passed away. Anytime. Be well. <laughs> listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Survivors of sexual harassment held a recent virtual news conference urging New York legislators to pass a bill that would give victims the right to their day in court against their alleged abusers. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. Known as the Adult Survivors Act, the measure would extend to adults the same rights that the state's Child Victims Act gives to survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Victims in cases where the statute of limitations has ended would have a one-year look-back window to bring a civil suit against their alleged abuser. Attorney Gloria Allred urged lawmakers to approve the measure this year. New York's laws were badly out of sync with the experiences of so many sexual assault survivors. For many survivors, including those that I represent in New York, outdated statutes of limitations mean 
that their opportunity to file a civil lawsuit has expired before they are ready or able to come forward. Allred represents numerous sexual assault survivors, including Lisa Gentilly, who says she was assaulted by Sex in the City and Law and Order star Chris Noth. Gentilly says Noth forcibly kissed and groped her in her New York apartment in 1998, then warned her to keep quiet. She says it's taken her decades to overcome her fears of calling out a powerful celebrity. I do regret not seeking justice against Chris Noth immediately after he assaulted me and threatened me 20 years ago. But I was young, I was traumatized, and I was afraid. There should not be a statute of limitations on our willingness and ability to hold those who sexually abuse us to account. I believe every survivor should have the right to file a civil case against his or her abuser and or the institution that failed to protect him or her. Noth denies the allegations as well as accusations from three other women. The Senate and Assembly sponsors of the bill also joined the news conference. Senate sponsor Brad Hoylman says the bill is moving through the Judiciary Committee and it's on track to be approved in the Senate for a second year in a row. But the measure has stalled in the Assembly. A spokesman for Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty said earlier this year that the Chamber's Sexual Harassment Working Group is looking at the bill as well as other proposed anti-sexual harassment legislation. Assembly sponsor Linda Rosenthal says she is lobbying being her colleagues, and the measure now has 50 sponsors. We are discussing it, and uh, hopefully soon uh, we'll have some some good news. But in the meantime, we are building our uh, support in the Assembly. New York Governor Kathy Hochul has not actively pushed for the measure. Hochul replaced former Governor Andrew Cuomo, who resigned in August over a sexual harassment scandal. Hochul has called out sexual harassment and other inappropriate behavior in state government. Meanwhile, Cuomo's lawyer continued to attack the credibility of three of the former governor's accusers, saying there were inconsistencies in some of their stories. Rita Glavin says Attorney General Tish James' report that Cuomo sexually harassed 11 women did not follow up on those discrepancies. The attorney general's investigation was shoddy. It was one-sided and there was a predetermined outcome. Glavin says Cuomo is looking at legal options. Cuomo denies that he sexually harassed anyone. The women have said they stand by their accounts. The attorney general has said previously that her report, conducted by a former acting United States attorney and an employment lawyer, speaks for itself. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2204. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.